Today we're coming to the, the concept in the Experiencing God book, the materials by Blackaby of uh, this idea of a crisis of belief, a decision that we have to make that, um, that rests upon okay, the, where we've kind of been up to this point and talked about hearing from God, hearing God's voice, whether that's through the Holy Spirit and giving us a nudge or a thought, we've, we've read scripture, we've been in Christian community together, and we just sense that God is, is asking us to do something in particular. And then we have a decision to make. We can either kind of follow that, no matter how kind of silly or weird or different it sounds or, or hard, or we can choose to do something else. So there is a scripture passage that's uh, listed in your bulletin that's uh, for for the sermon today. And it's one that we've we've kind of been covering time and time again. So if it looks familiar and it sounds familiar, that's a good thing because we keep kind of coming back to this because we want you to understand that the pattern that Jesus left us was also something he himself did. This idea of following what, what God is doing in the world. So in John 5, 17 through 20, we read, In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Jesus gave them this answer. This is kind of the key point. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. Well, there was a new CEO who wanted to teach his company about productivity, and not just with words, but with decisive action, right? That's how CEOs think. So he gathered the managers together and had him in the boardroom and he spoke on the importance of, you know, cutting out the fat, streamlining the company and managing the projections of you know, COVID-19 with bold action in the days ahead. After that, they headed out of the boardroom and they were leaving for lunch. While passing through the offices, this new CEO found a young man who's you know, dressed in jeans, a t-shirt leaning on the wall, he's tapping on his phone. He decided in that moment, this young CEO, he decided that he was going to make an example for his managers who were behind him, and he approached the, the young man. <clears throat> young man, what are you doing? I'm texting my girl, man, what's up? <laughs> well, how much do you earn an hour? Um, $10 an hour, man. Well, let's see. Five, or no, $10 per hour, eight hours, five days a week, you earn $1,600 per month. Here. I have 
$1,600 in cash, take it and never show your face in here again. The team took the money, left the office right away. Smiling, the decisive CEO turned to his managers. See, that's what I'm talking about. Bold moves, cutting the fat, removing those who will not or do not work hard. Productivity. While his managers applauded him, he turned to one of the desk workers. I'm curious, how long did the, uh, did the boy work here? Well, he didn't work here, sir, said the young woman. He was the guy from DoorDash Delivering Services bringing me my lunch, sir. <laughs> with a crisis, with a decision, it's important to know what you're truly facing, what the challenge is and what God is calling you to do. Bold action, just for bold action's sake, is likely to cost you more than it costs this young CEO. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for this opportunity to learn from your word, to think about the decisions that we have to make in life, especially those decisions that hold the weight of deciding if and when we are going to follow your lead. Enlighten our hearts and minds to what you would speak to us this day. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. So, crisis of belief. When we're talking about a crisis of belief, what do we mean? Right. Now, sometimes going back to the original languages is really hard. In this case, when it comes to the word crisis, you want to know how you spell crisis in Greek? Just change the C to a K. It's K-R-I-S-I-S. That's the Greek word from which we get crisis. So this is an example where the ancient word becomes kind of a loan word. We just adopted right into our language, unchanged in its meaning from, from its root word over two millennia. A crisis has been a crisis has been a crisis for thousands of years. I don't know if that's comforting or disheartening, actually. <laughs> I'll let you decide. But we can gain a little insight into the meaning of our present day crises if we Look at other words associated with this Greek word, crisis with a K. The following is from an article in the uh, BBC's Vocabularist, which I don't know if that's an actual word, but it's the, the name of this person's column. And they wrote on September 15, 2015, the Greek word or verb krino meant separate, to judge or decide, and from it came the Greek noun kritis meaning judge, from which we get our word critic. Can you can I kind of hear it in there? So a critic judges whether a movie is good or not, or a place to eat is good or not. And also, from the same root, we get criteria, right? The, the a test by which to judge by. The related word crisis signify the preference of one alternative over another. So it's A versus B. Maybe you had two different choices, but they weren't equal choices necessarily. There was one that was intended that was better. The day of judgment, for example, in the Greek New Testament is Homero Chrysios. The day of judgment. So this, this big crisis of judgment 
truly a crisis for those at risk of damnation if they make the ill-advised choice. Normally, a crisis is a parting of ways, a point of uncertainty before events move on. Now, we know thus far in our exploration of, of these themes of experiencing God, that God is always active in our world. Have you caught that bit yet, that I've kind of been emphasizing this? God is always active in our world. God is doing something in and around us all the time. And God seeks a loving and personal relationship with us. And because of this relationship, God is pleased to invite us into the joy of partnering with him and his purposes, plans, and activity in the world. And as we learn to hear from God, and so that's the last thing we've talked about, kind of, do you, do you hear the key points that I'm kind of summarizing as we're, we're getting to where we are in the series? As we learn to hear from God and attune our hearts to his activity in and around us, we will come to the point of decision. This is what Blackaby refers to as a crisis of belief. These moments by themselves can seem fairly small or insignificant. But by being insensitive to God's call or, or just flat out disobedient, we could miss an opportunity to encourage someone else or to see a prayer answered by God through us. Other times may be more significant even than that. Here's the tricky thing. We don't always know the significance of something as we are choosing in our moment of decision or crisis, if you will. We only gain that understanding after the fact, at the end, by looking back to see how God orchestrated our circumstances and worked in or through us. Have you ever had those moments where, where you look back and something that seemed really insignificant at the time set off a chain of events that, that led you to a new job, that took you to a new town, that brought you into a new relationship. So we don't always know at, at the point when we're making that decision, whether it's a big decision or not. You can see then how responding to God's calling can determine whether or not we're gonna be involved with the Lord in something God-sized that only he can do, or whether we continue to go our own way and potentially miss what God has purposed for us. How we live our life and face our moments of decision, our crisis of faith, is a testimony about what we believe about God. And that testimony is a powerful witness to other people. We're gonna to look today at an example of someone God called that faced multiple crises of faith and what we can learn from his example. So if you've got your Bibles, you can open up to Judges 6 and 7 because we're going to spend some time here. Judges 6 and 7 there in the Old Testament. In Judges 6, we get the call of Gideon. Gideon's who we're going to be looking at today. We see this fascinating exchange between Gideon and the angel of the Lord. So first in Judges 6, starting at verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak at Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abyssalite. 
where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Uh, pardon me, my Lord? Gideon replied, But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and has given us into the hand of Him. That's pretty bold. If the Lord came and appeared to me as an angel of the Lord and said, Welcome, you know, bold pastor type person, Chris. I'm not sure I would be responding the way Gideon did. But Gideon's kind of happy. It's kind of happy. It's like, we have no evidence that you are a miracle working God. And then he starts ticking off examples. So the Lord turned to him and said, this is verse 14. Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's head. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord. Now at this point, I'm thinking Gideon is using pardon me. Kind of like, oh no you didn't. <laughs> I don't think so. Are you sure you got that right? You, know, you can substitute a lot of different phrases in there for Pardon me, my lord. Gideon replied, But how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. The Midianites have made the lives of the Israelites miserable. Right? If you back up in chapter 6 to verse 2, you read about what life was like for the Israelites living at that time. In verse 2, see, because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in the mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Now, why would they do that? Because they just like camping in caves on the weekend? No, because whenever the Israelites, verse 3, whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, the Malachites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. So the Israelites do all the hard work of raising a crop. These foreign nations are just parked on the doorstep, you know, they're like checking the calendar. They're like, oh, it's harvest time. Guess what? It's time to go show those Israelites who's boss. And they ride in. So they camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or the cam their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Now, what we, what we aren't going to read in chapter 6 today, because we, we just simply don't have time, but it's fascinating. What we don't read here today pertains to how Gideon tests the Lord to see if God is really calling him. Like, really, God? Do you really mean it that I'm this you know, great warrior calling me? The Lord's patient with him and meets his demands for a sign. First, it has something to do with, you know, preparing a sacrifice and fire comes down from heaven and burns it up. And then there's the whole thing with the laying out the fleece, right? You've heard of Gideon's fleece. This is what it's referencing. Um, 
You know, he lays it out and asks God first to have the, the fleece soaked with dew and all the ground around it dry. God does that. He's like, oh, you know, he's bringing it out. He's like, well, maybe there's natural phenomenon that could have explained that. So let's do it the other way, Lord, one more time. Have the fleece be totally dry and all the ground around it soaked with dew. So God's patient through all of this. And now we face the real test in Scripture. Right? As Gideon's tested the Lord over and over, and God's passed every test, Gideon's like, all right. And the crisis of faith now has reached the point where it's going to determine if Gideon is going to be used by God to accomplish his purposes or not. In Judges 6.33 we read, Now all the Midianites and Malachites and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. I want everyone to see this clearly. Right? Verse 33, if you got it in front of you. Everyone repeat after me, join forces. Join forces. Yes. So we start off by talking about the Midianites and how they get together with other baddies in the east and come in on occasion. And now at this point of crisis, they join forces once again. Thank you for repeating that after me because when God determines to do a thing in or through you, there is going to be resistance. There's going to be resistance. And that resistance is going to be significant. More than one hurdle is going to come your way. Whatever your trouble is that you're facing in that moment of crisis, that trouble is going to go out and join forces, it's going to seem like. Other stuff is going to be happening. You're, you're facing a, a loved one that's got surgery coming up, and then you get your own health issue, right? Amen? You've got some trouble financially, and then your kid, you know, smashes the car, and then there's another bill. You know, I, hope, I hope I'm not prophetic in that. I don't know anything you don't know at this point, so I'm not, I don't know if, so don't do that, okay? All right. Whatever is opposed to you is going to join forces. Why? What is it you're being called to do? Who is it that's calling you? God's calling you to do something that may be very significant in the lives, not only in your life, but in the lives of other people. There's somebody out there that doesn't like that very much. That doesn't want God's purposes to be accomplished. All right, let's move on. I can get carried away with that. Let's move on to Judges chapter 7. In Judges 7, 1 through 8, in verses 12 we read, Early in the morning, Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Harath. Camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. God said to Gideon, you know what? You've got too many men. Too many men to deliver Midian into their hands. So in order that Israel may not boast against me, that their own strength and savior announce now to the people, anyone who trembles in fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. Step starts with 30,000. So 22,000 men left. While 10,000 remain. 
So two-thirds, they, they head out. I said, nope, not really a warrior anyway. I'm a farmer. This is not my deal. I'm going home. Good luck. But the Lord said to Gideon, he's got 10,000 at this point. There are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will sift them for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, then he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water, and the Lord said, Separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. Three hundred men lapped with their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and the trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. The Midianites and the Malachites and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. So the first thing we see in this passage is that there's plenty of the enemy. They have indeed joined forces. Chapter 7, verse 12 tells us that they were thick as locusts. Now recently, as you know, I was in Montana, in wheat country, and the grasshoppers were pretty bad. They can come through, I've had this happen to my own little home garden in Helena before, they can come through and strip a bush or a tree or your vegetable garden in no time. But as impressive as that is, it doesn't compare to what locust swarms can do in the Mediterranean countries like Israel and the like. Locust swarms can darken the skies like a giant storm. This is from National Geographic. A desert locust swarm can be 460 square miles in size and pack between 40 and 80 million locusts into less than half a square mile. So do the math, that's way too many bugs. Ooh. Right? Each locust can eat its weight in plants each day. So a swarm of such size would eat 423 million pounds of plants every day. To put it into context, a swarm, let's say, let's pick a slightly smaller swarm, a swarm the size of Paris, which is 40 square miles, can eat the same amount of food in one day as half the population of France. About 33 million people. So that's a lot. We're also told that the number of camels was like the sand on the seashore. Now, a cubic meter of sand, right? has about 8 billion grains of sand, equal to the population of the entire Earth today, and certainly more than those souls that existed 3,000 years ago. So what do we know about this passage? We know it's hyperbole, all right? We know that it's not, we're not talking actual mathematical figures here. You are meant to understand with the locust, you know, the locust metaphor, with the sand on the seashore metaphor, that this is an insurmountably large task against an invincible foe. 
you are meant to feel how Gideon must have felt. Overwhelmed. Like there's no way. Has anybody ever felt that when looking at their circumstances? I'm overwhelmed. There's no way. God, even if you check off everything on my prayer to-do list that I want you to do, I still don't see a way out. In the beginning, Gideon had just 32,000 fighting men. If you were a strategist for the military, you would say 32,000 soldiers is an insufficient force to face an enemy this size. Even the 32,000 he started with is insufficient against what he's facing. So in spite of this, God tells Gideon that he had too many for the battle. Obviously, God is not going to qualify as a military strategist. That's not God's deal. He tells Gideon to cut the numbers by 22,000. So Gideon only has 10,000 now. Still, God says to Gideon, even after that, you still have too many. I wonder what Gideon might have been thinking at this stage. You know, when, when he's got the 10,000 left and, and God says, you know, lead them down by the waters and, and I'll sort them out there for you. That's, that's a crisis of faith moment right there. Gideon just said, you know what, God? You've been really helpful up to this point. I think I can sort them out from here. Because I saw what happened last time we did the sorting thing. I lost 22,000 and then bye-bye. Now, he goes, and nevertheless, another, you know, 9,700 men are cut out, and only 300 are left. To fight an enemy, how big? Too big to count. Too big to count. Like, look to the horizon, you're still seeing the enemy tents. And herds of camels. And not just camels, it's not like the camels are going to be doing the fighting. It's the people that get on the camels and do the fighting. So kind of like cavalry, you know, tanks, in modern day military parlance. I recently got to visit, visit Patriots Point in Charleston, South Carolina, and I was, one of the things that was, I was fascinated by was, uh, was the display of the different military aircraft that they had on the, the carrier, that they had on the, uh, out of the water there. And the most amazing aspect to me was the superiority of the planes of the American fighting men and women who flew them compared to our adversaries. For instance, the, the F-14 Tomcat, if I say F-14 Tomcat, you should be automatically thinking Top Gun, right? Highway to the danger zone. If you have, have you ever seen Top Gun? It's a classic. Go see it, right? <laughs> The F-14 Tomcat of Top Gun fame had a 36 to 1 kill ratio in aerial dogfights. 36 to 1. That means for every plane of ours that was down, we had down 36 enemy aircraft. 36 to 1. That's a pretty awesome ratio. Most, most militaries would kill them for numbers like that. But it wouldn't have helped Gideon. Even ratios like that wouldn't have helped Gideon. Gideon has 300 men. The enemy has tens upon tens of thousands. Even if we assume a relatively small number, just for argument's sake of 90,000, 
the enemy has 90,000. That means Gideon is outnumbered 300 to 1. 300 to 1. Even if I'm the world's best warrior, me against 300 so-so warriors, I think just by sheer mass, I'm going to be overwhelmed. I have no doubt that Gideon must have struggled with this crisis. Because that's exactly what it is in human terms. It's a crisis. In total, God had sent 31,700 fighting men home, leaving only 300 to fight against this tremendous force. But, but God was going to give the victory through just the 300. Now we might ask, why on earth would God do that? Well, God wanted Gideon to be clear, and all of Israel, the victory came from God's enabling, empowering, and work, not from luck or skill on their part. Victory would come to Gideon and his minuscule little army because of their obedience, their belief and trust. In God, yes, but also Gideon as their leader and in one another. Remember, these are actual human beings. Sometimes when we read the numbers in Scripture, we just think numbers. Oh, and God is awesome. But these were actual flesh and blood people. They as us, we as them. Like, if we're looking around, you know, it's, you don't, there's the saying sometimes, you don't fight the battle with the army you wish you had, you fight the battle with the army you got. So the correlation today is we could be looking at one another. We could be looking at what God is calling us to. Look around and be like, well, what if we had a really happening crazy baby? What if we had a super cool bilingual youth pastor? What if our pastor was a little more articulate and cooler? What if, what if, what if? But guess what? That's not, that's, not, that's not the army we got. We is the army we got to face the challenge. And when we face it, we know God is with us. Just like he was with Gideon. Here in scripture, this was a God-sized assignment that only God could achieve. If you want to do things in life that you can do with your own strength, that's what you're going to do. Nothing wrong with that. You'll get human-sized assignments that you can muddle through with or without God. But how much more exhilarating might it be to consider listening to God and joining with God in a God-sized assignment? A task or endeavor so large that it's clear that God is the one that brought about success. To have these experiences, we need God's help. It requires faith in the beginning to answer the call, in the middle, in the midst of the fight, and at the end to finish well. All for God's glory. It takes active faith. I'll spend the last few minutes of this message on just taking a look at active faith, what that means. What does the Bible tell us about active faith? If you're taking notes, I'm going to go through a couple verses fairly quickly so you can jot these down. Hebrews 11.1, 1, we read that faith is sure of what we hope for and certain of what we don't see. 
Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Faith is being sure about God and what God is doing. It's not some kind of meaningless hope, but has its foundation secured in the living God that has made a way for all of mankind to have a personal relationship with Him if they just place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That certainty comes from knowing that God is both Alpha and Omega, first and last, and everything in between. And God's character is unwavering. So when God gives us an assignment, He's already at the end of that assignment. That's what it means to be Alpha and Omega. So when God called Gideon, God knew what God was going to do if Gideon stepped into what he was being called to do. Whether he had 32,000 or 300. The size of the army didn't mean nothing to God. But it meant something to Gideon. So that's why God whittled it down to 300. So that Gideon would be sure not to say, I did it. It was me. I'm awesome. In 2 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul reminds us, we live by faith and not by sight. So that's another aspect of an active faith. We don't live by the limitations of human logic, in which we just trust in what we can see. We live by God's perspective and trust Him in what He wants, even though we might feel inadequate or incapable of facing our fears and the challenges put before us. Because our circumstances are never greater than our God. Amen? Our circumstances are never going to be greater than our God. So what proves then that we have faith? We'll revisit another passage from John, which the author of Experiencing God keeps coming back to John 14. John 14, 12. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. He will do what I have been doing. What has Jesus primarily been doing up to this point? Was it about the miracles and the healings and the things that often get brought up when the things that come to mind when Jesus says, you will do even greater things than these? that's where a lot of people's minds go to. They say, oh, well, Jesus healed up means that I get to heal. If Jesus did big flashy things, I want to do big flashy things. No, that wasn't Jesus' primary motivation. That wasn't, he says, greater things than, than these that I'm doing. It was that the healing ministry, the, the feeding of the 5,000, those miracles, that was not Jesus' mission state. Those were things that got attention. Those were things that, that got a crowd around him. What does Jesus say his primary purpose was? His mission statement. In Luke 19.10 he says, The Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. To seek and save the lost. The greatest miracle is to see a lost soul, a seeking individual, come into relationship with Jesus that changes their eternal destiny. That's a miracle. Amen? Amen. Feeding 5,000? Those 5,000 were hungry six hours later. 
Save on a little kid because he comes to CDF club. That kid's set for eternity. That's a big deal, folks. Jesus said the angels rejoice over one sinner who repents and comes to faith. Angels are not cheering over healings, as oppressed as we may be. Angels are not cheering over beatings and prophecy. They cheer when a lost son or daughter comes home to God. So an active faith means that we become involved in the things that Jesus has been doing and is doing still today, seeking and saving the lost getting involved in proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. All right, I've got more here, but I'm gonna save it for next week. I wanna I want to come back to this, because I think this is so key. Um, I wanna do something a little bit different next Sunday for our message time. I'm gonna, something that might stretch us a little bit, I'm going to finish off what I prepared for this message. But I realized that it was going a little bit too long. <laughs> there was even stuff that I prepared that's not on this page. So I'm going to finish, I'm going to finish this message. That will be about the first 10 or 15 minutes. And then I'm going to ask those that feel led to share how you feel God has been working in and through you. Over the course of this time that We've been exploring, experiencing God together. What is, what has God shown you? How have you been drawn to your own crisis of faith, perhaps? Where are you seeing the Father's lead? To answer any of those questions, or, or none of the above, it could be something else you feel you feel called to share over where we've been the last two months. So that'll be next Sunday. I think we can do it. Otherwise, it'll be a really short sermon. <laughs> but for now, let's close in prayer. Will you join me? God, we thank you for examples that we have in Scripture, like Gideon, so many others, real men and women that faced seemingly insurmountable odds. And I know how it is. I, I mean, I can read scripture at times and I go, well, that's great for them. That's awesome that that happened 3,000 years ago. And I can miss what you're doing around me because, because I'm not looking. I'm just simply not looking. God, you're doing the miraculous every day. The salvation of one little boy is so much more significant than feeding 10,000 people. How you might use us to encourage and, and bring others along in the faith is of way more importance than any grand, big, flashy, showy thing that we might do that, that signifies successful ministry to us. So even if we had an army of 32,000 believers, if we had a mega church, you'd probably still be looking at us and saying, you know what? Send most of them home. 
because you want it to be clear to us that what you're doing is your plan, your action. And we're just joining you in that work. So that you would get the glory, not us. That we wouldn't think it, it's about our brilliance or our ability, our skill. Lord, may it always be only and forever all about you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.